All right, apparently Chris needs to spend more time with me to learn more about me, so. <laughs> All right, I've, I've fooled him so far. All right, well, hey, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, good morning, Foothill Church. It's, uh, it's such a pleasure to be able to be here and open up the Word of God uh, with you today. The question I want us to kind of start with today is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Not in the theoretical, philosophical, Discovery Channel special kind of, who is Jesus, but like in a practical, everyday sense, who is Jesus? Because you see, your answer to that question is the most important answer to any question you can ever make. It will shape your life more than anything else. Watch this video and see if you see what I mean. White guy with a beard? A white guy. Looks like it's from the 60s. A reason to believe and to continue on in your life and your journey? Not that blonde-haired dude that they show in all those pictures. I think Jesus was just a story made up by someone. Could have been probably a, a, a real person. It's something special, but uh, not, not, not like the story says. Yeah. I'm actually glad you're all here tonight. I want to tell you that one of you will betray me. Nah, just kidding. Ah, he's doing that thing he did in this storybook. Uh, Jesus, a friend of mine from Puerto Rico. I don't know. I, I don't know Jesus very well, so... Jesus? Like Jesus? The son of God? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Definitely not the guy who cuts my lawn. Dear Tiny and for Jesus... Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. Yes, there's definitely something special about Jesus. The same things that are special about me and you and, well, everybody. Definitely good morals and beliefs, and um, possibly had some special gift. And his best pal, Peter. Oh, 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 wow. Who do you say Jesus is? <sighs> He's really important. His birthday's coming up. People believe in Jesus. He's your savior. He's number one. Everyone is giddy with anticipation for Jesus to come out because, as we all know, if Jesus comes out of his house and is not scared by his shadow, it means the next thousand years will be full of peace and love. He was just really chill. I think he even smoked some pot, so I love Jesus even more. He seems like a kind of Gandhi type guy. Some superpower, I just don't know. I, I believe in him, him so. <laughs> uh, he was Jewish. Look, I think he's inspiring for a lot of people, so that's really cool to me. God bless him. <laughs> a make-believe story that's got blown out of proportion. Wow. Now, if you identify yourself as a Christian, that means that you identify with Christ. Or as C.S. Lewis famously quipped, you are trying to become a little Christ. So knowing who Jesus is is essential for you to be able to become a little Christ. If you're not a Christian, that's also because of your beliefs about Jesus. Maybe like the woman in the video, you say, yes, Jesus is special, but just like the rest of us. And so why would you follow someone who's special just like you are? You see, the words you put after Jesus is determine more of how you live your life than anything else. See, if you see Jesus as a good guy, you'll try to emulate him as much as you emulate other good guys in your life, 
which is not very much. If you, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you'll refer to him with deep respect and admiration. If you see Jesus as an extension of an angry God, you'll avoid him, especially when times get tough. If you see Jesus as your advocate before God, you'll gladly shut up and let him plead your case. If you see him as a, as a billowy-haired weakling or as the tiny infant Jesus, you rely on your own strength to face the troubles that come your way. And if you see Jesus as a savior that has endured the same hardships, the same struggles, and the same temptations that you have, you'll confide in and run for him for support as you walk through them. So my question for you is, who do you say that Jesus is? So if you've been at Foothill, you realize that we just walk through books of the Bible. And for the past month or so, maybe three months, we've been working through the book of Hebrews. And today we're in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And this is a passage squarely about identity, about Jesus's identity. The writer of Hebrews wants to emphatically answer that question, who is Jesus for us? He wants to give us just a straight on answer. This is who Jesus is. And then as he does that, he wants to say, so if this is, if this is who Jesus is, then here's how you can live your life. So please go ahead and stand and I will read for us Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for your word that, that tells us who you are so clearly. And God, as we open up the scriptures today, God, we pray that you would just speak. Lord, we pray that you would make it so clear to us who you are. And God, I pray that as we as we dig in here, as we, as we kind of work through this passage, as we listen, God, that you would do what you want to do in our hearts and in our lives to make us more of the men and women that you have designed for us to be. God, I pray that I would, 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 would not get in the way of what you have to say today. God, I pray that I would just simply be a clean pipe through which your word cleanly flows. God, may I get out of the way, Lord, so that you are front and center. And Lord, as we, as we, look, at, as we look at your word today, so God, we thank you for, um, for what we believe you're going to do, and we look forward to that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may go ahead and sit down. So today we're going to look at who Jesus is, the great high priest, and how his identity shapes how we should live. And what I want you to do is I want you to kind of see the framework of this passage, because what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work through it as we go here. So the first the th things I want you to see are kind of two, because Jesus is this, then we should do this, okay? And the first the first one's in the first verse. Because Jesus is the great high priest, we can hold fast our confession. And secondly, because Jesus is the sympathetic high priest, we can then confidently run to Jesus in our time of need, right? So there are two statements of what we should do here, but they are preceded by statements about who Jesus is. And quite frankly, we see this pattern all the way through the scriptures. Like we are constantly being told in the scriptures to do this, to do this, to do this. However, those, those instructions always come after statements of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, right? So that's going to be the same pattern that we see here in this passage. I want you to see, to see this real quick in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 11 and 19. 
We're starting in verse 9. God, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so we may, might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we loved God, get the order here, but that, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Verse 11, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. And then bounce down to verse 19, you see it all kind of summed up here. We love each other because he loved us first. And quite frankly, this rhythm is one of the things that I just love about Christianity. This is why Christianity is kind of the anti-religion, right? right? So all the other religions kind of suggest this, right? That God sits at the top of the mountain, and we're down here, and we got to do something to get to him. Christianity is totally opposite of that, right? God sits at the top of the mountain, we're down here, and he says, you can't get to me. By the way, that's the whole Old Testament. You can't find your way to climb. So you know what? I'll come to you. Boom, I come to you. And now because I come to you, I'm going to call you to do some things. I'm going to come to you, then you're going to act, right? So see this rhythm here, right? So Jesus is, Jesus, Je Jesus does, and then we do following that, okay? So the writer of Hebrews certainly has some words for us, some instructions for us today to hold fast our confession, uh, to run to Jesus, to draw near to him in time of need. But that, of course, comes out of who Jesus is. Now, now, if you know me well, you know that I'm a person who likes to cut to the chase. So as I, so as I opened, up the, 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 opened up the scriptures several weeks ago and started preparing, my mind immediately went to the instructions, the let us hold fast our confession, let us run to Jesus. And I'm like, well, I just want to preach that. But then the word of God just smacked me in the face. And it was like, no, you can't preach that unless you first understand what Jesus has done. And so, and so we're not going to, like, cut to the chase. We'll get to the chase. We'll, we'll get to what he has to say. But, but, but we're going to hang here for a while and really understand, what does it mean that Jesus is a great and sympathetic high priest? What does that mean? What does that look like? Because once we understand what that looks like, then we can actually do something with that and understand what the writer here is instructing for us to do. Now, if you want to take notes at home, let me tell you what we're going to do here, okay? Here's the point, and this is what we're going to unpack as we walk through today. Because Jesus is the great and sympathetic high priest, you can do two things. One, you can hold fast your confession. And two, you can run to Jesus in time of need. And we're just going to walk that through, starting with because Jesus is the great and sympathetic high priest. Now, as you look at this passage, and, and, and as I talk here, just kind of take a look at it and see how many markers of identity you can find. Here, the writer of Hebrews is telling us, is telling us who Jesus is. So we see there, right, right, right in verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So this high priest no longer is down on earth, but is now in the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, tells us who Jesus is in relation, in relation to God the Father. And then we see that this is a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So what do we see here in terms of identity? The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the great high priest. Now, to understand what a great high priest is, it's probably important for us, for us to understand what a high priest is, okay? So the high priest did a few things. And in Hebrews chapter 5, just what's just following right after uh, the passage we're looking at today, in verses 1 through 3, kind of explains what a high priest does. And I'm sorry, Stephen, because I'm kind of getting into your territory for next week. We'll pop in and pop right back out, okay? Um, but, look, but look at this, starting in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men 
in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So really, there's two primary roles here of a high priest. The first, prim- the first role is that a high priest advocated for the people to God. Okay? High priest advocated for the people to God. So people are here. God is here. The high priest advocates for them. See, the Jews were well aware that because of their sin, there was a gulf between God and them. There's distance, right? When, when, when the Jews broke the law, right, God could not look on that, that, that sinfulness, right? God's a holy God, so there's distance. So God's here, people's here. Well, what do we, what do, we do with this distance? Well, high, well, the priests advocated, the priests mediated that distance, right? They were kind of go-betweens. And we see this kind of in the way that the temple was set up. So in, the, in, in, in Jesus' day in the Jerusalem temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. Perhaps you've heard of this before. And the Holy of Holies was behind a veil and several doors. And there was only one person who was able to ever go into the Holy of Holies. And this was the high priest. The Holy of Holies was where God resided at that time. So only one person could ever go in and could only go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement or on Yom Kippur. So the high priest would go in would go in, would go into the Holy of Holies. By the way, they would have a cord wrapped around their leg in case they were to die so that the other people could haul them out because nobody else was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Right? Okay? So, 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 these, so these priests would go in there and then they would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Right? So these high priests are advocates before God. Okay? Make sense so far? All right? They, the high priests are these mediators and these advocates for the people to God. And then secondly, what do they do? How do they advocate? Well, they, they offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Before Jesus, the high priest would offer animal sacrifices, right? So they would, they would kill a goat or a lamb or a cow, right? They'd kill something, right? The, and then, they, they, and then they'd, they'd put them on the altar and they'd burn it. That's how they would, that's how they would offer sacrifice. Blood was required to cover sin. The high priests were the ones who were chosen, who were appointed to be the ones to offer those sacrifices. On the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the priests would go into the Holy of Holies, they would, well, they would kill animals first, one for their, their sins and their family's sins, and then one for the sins of the people, and they'd take, these, they'd, 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 they'd take the blood and they'd sprinkle it around, and, they, and by doing that, they would advocate for the people. Now, I want you to see something here. There's one more thing that's kind of important to see about high priests. The last thing to see is that all high priests themselves were beset with weakness. This is the last part of that that passage in chapter 5, right? So when they went in to advocate for the people, they were also advocating for themselves, right? They had skin in the game. Like there was something that they, they had sinned too, so they also needed a sacrifice for their own sins. So here's what we see. We see that the high priests are those who advocate for the people by offering sacrifices for sin. What a picture this is that the writer of Hebrews leads for us. Because then he comes along and he says, hey, 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 Jesus is the great high priest. He supersedes all the other high priests. He is a greater advocate and a greater sacrifice than any of the other high priests. I get chills as I say that literally, literally right now. He is the great high priest. So how is, how is Jesus the great high priest? First of all, he's the ultimate advocate. 
And, and I think he's the ultimate advocate kind of in three ways. The first way is that because Jesus is fully God and fully human, he's the only one who can truly advocate for us. He's kind of like a court-appointed special advocate for a child. My, 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 my family and I, we just adopted a little boy. His name is Matthew. We adopted him about four or five months ago. And maybe some of you were here the day that we dedicated him, which was super, super awesome, amazing, amazing journey. But we learned a little bit about how the court system works for kids and, and so on. But there, is these thing, there are these, these people called court-appointed special advocates or CASAs. And they are people who are appointed by the court, this is important, by the court to advocate for the kids. Their job is to do everything they can do to do what's best for that child. And guess what? They're appointed by the judge. Huh. So maybe Jesus is like our casa. Jesus' job, right? He's appointed by the judge, the righteous judge, to advocate on the child on our behalf. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, imagine, imagine at your workplace, like if, if there was, if the son of the boss, like the biggest boss, just sat in a room and his job was just to hear, just to hear your thoughts and your ideas and to advocate for you to the boss, it'd probably go pretty well because he's a son, right? I mean, I mean, I mean this, is why, this is why when you network, right, you never go for a kind of a cold introduction. You always ask, hey, do you know this person? Could you introduce me? Because there's power in advocacy. And Jesus is our advocate before the Father. Secondly, secondly, Jesus is, a, is, a, is, is the ultimate advocate because when Jesus died, this is recorded in Matthew 27, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn apart. That veil was gone. I mean, like, that veil was gone. So no longer is there like this distance, is, the, is there this barrier between God and the people. Jesus shatters it. It's gone. And so now we're able to go directly to God. You see, see, those priests could only do this once a year, right? They could only go in. We can go in there all the time because of what Jesus has done. And then finally, Jesus doesn't just stay here and advocate for us, but he's passed through the heavens. And he continues to advocate and intercede on our behalf, sitting at the right hand of God. 1 John 2, 1 says this, if anyone does sin, I mean, get that, if anyone does sin, not like if anyone has sinned, if anyone does sin, because we constantly are sinning, right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, Jesus intercedes for you every day. The priest could only enter God's presence once a year. Jesus sits there permanently, and he uses that spot to advocate for us. Wow. So Jesus is the ultimate advocate, but he's not only the ultimate advocate. He's also the ultimate sacrifice. You see, Jesus gave himself, not an, not an animal. All the other high priests would pull together their sacrifice that wasn't them. It's a lot easier to give things away that aren't yours. It's a lot harder to give things away that are yours. A lot harder. And so Jesus here he doesn't sacrifice something else. He sacrifices himself. The pastor and theologian Kim Riddlebarger says this, and I love the way he kind of captures what's going on here. Not only does Christ the high priest offer an all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, but he also is himself the all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. Jesus offers himself for the sins. He is the perfect, unblemished lamb, and he offers himself for us. 
And this is precisely what makes his death pay the price for our sins. It was completely substitutionary. Now, I think we have, an, we have a hard time kind of getting this idea that it was completely substitutionary because for us, whenever we give something, we always get something back, right? We have a saying for that. It's more blessed to give than to receive, right? And it truly is, right? If you've ever been on a mission trip, you, you, you're like, hey, yeah, I'm going to go to Africa, or I'm going to go to Mexico, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go down and I'm really bless these people. And as soon as you get there, you realize, uh, I think actually I'm the one being blessed. Right? And, and you, spend your, you spend your couple weeks down there, and you come back here, and, and you do your debrief time. And, and your whole debrief is about how amazing the trip was for you, and how much you grew, and how much you saw, and how much those people blessed you. Because it is, more, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Or, 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 like when you, or like when you give someone a gift. I'm not a very good gift giver. This is, this is hard for my wife. I very rarely like make it happen. So a couple, couple Christmases ago, I'm like, I'm going to try to make this thing happen. So she had been wanting an iPhone. So I thought, okay, I will get you an iPhone for Christmas. So I, I, I actually opened up a whole new plan, which is a horrible financial move. Like, don't do that. It's stupid. Uh, but I guess it was worth the surprise. <laughs> so, so I opened up this whole new plan. I get this phone. She can keep using her old phone. Then Christmas Eve comes. This is the day we open up our gifts. And I'm giddy with excitement. You know, I've got it all set up. I've got some apps on there that I, think, that I think that she'll like. And I put it back in the box. And I wrap it and put it by the tree and it's on. And, and the time comes and I tell my dad, like, Dad, go call, the, go call the number, right? So he calls the number and this package starts ringing. And my wife's like, what's that? I'm like, oh, I don't know what that is. Why don't you go see? You know, you know, you know how this goes, right? And so, and so I, am like, I am like stoked for this. I'm so excited. Open it up. Ah! She opens it up, and she was excited. I was like, oh, cool, thank, thank you, this was fun. But I was, like, really excited, right? And probably this was way for you, right? When you give great gifts, when you do things, it benefits you greatly. And here's the thing. That was always the case for the high priests because they themselves were beset by weakness. So when they needed to offer sacrifice, first of all, they're offering some sacrifice that isn't them. And secondly, they get all bloodied up, but they kind of deserve it because they're offering sacrifices for their stuff too, but not Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus never, ever sinned. Ever. But he gives his life for us. It's 100% substitution. It is 100% giving of himself for others. Something he did not need to do. Do you see this? I hope you see this. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. Don't miss the significance here, right? He gave his life, his perfect life, his undeserving death for our undeserving life. It should be your and my deserved death and his deserved life. But Jesus' sacrifice reserved it, reversed it. It's amazing. Jesus is truly the great, the great, the great high priest. And so now you're saying, okay, so that's cool. Like, I, I, I see that. Like, wow, that's awesome. But why would he do that? And he would do that because he's not only the great high priest, he's also the sympathetic high priest. And that's the next piece of identity that I want you to see here. Verse 15, we see, if we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, Jesus sympathizes with us. He's felt the pain we endure. He's felt the loneliness that we run from. He's felt the urge to do things his own way. He's felt the temptations that, are, that knock constantly at our door. He's walked the same paths that we walk. He knows how hard it is. It's hard. Things aren't right here. Jesus gets it. But in the midst of that, he never sinned. You see, and because he never gave in to that, to that temptation, he knows better than we ever can know how hard and how painful it is to be tempted. And I think that's what drove him. That compassion is what drove him to make himself the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He wanted to relieve us from this incredible burden. I mean, I hope you see this. The Lord of the universe sympathizes with you so much and loves you so much that he sacrificed himself to give you freedom from all that entangles you. Wow, what a God, right? Now, now, now let, me, let me just pause here for one second. Now, if you think, but, but, but Jesus was God, so temptation could have never been that hard. Ha, no, think of it this way. Okay, I like food. Let me give you an illustration here. Okay, I love food. I love to eat. Like, I love, love, love to eat. Okay, so when I was a kid, I used to love, like, holiday meals, right? All the family comes over, and everyone brings their best dish, and it all goes out on the table. And you know, you got the green bean casserole and the Texas potatoes. got it all right there. But mom's like, hey, the rolls aren't done yet, right? And grandma's not here, so we can't start. I'm like, no, I want to start. And I am tempted to go in there and sneak a bite of something. See, but so, so, so I might resist that temptation, but only for like 15 or 30 minutes until the rolls are done and grandma shows up. And then I get to dig in. Jesus. Imagine, right? The greatest buffet ever. The most amazing, the most amazing display. Temptation at its finest. Jesus says, nope. 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 Not going to do it. 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 Not going to do it goes to the cross, gets beaten, gets yelled at, gets made fun of, to put it lightly. And he never sins. That, my friends, is a savior who knows something about temptation. That, my friends, is someone who knows way more about temptation than we can ever know. He gets it deeply. Gets it, gets it, gets it. And he loves us so much. So here, here we see in the great and sympathetic high priest, we see two incredible elements of Jesus' nature put together. His humanity, he was, tempt, he was tempted, he understands what it's like, he, was sympath, he sympathizes with us, and his divinity. He didn't sin, he's incredible. What a God, he's a God who gets us, but doesn't fall the way that we fall. You see, in Jesus, we see power and compassion together. See, and we need a powerful, compassionate Savior. We, we probably wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, that's like the only kind of Savior we'd ever want or would ever accept. So power without compassion is just a tyrant, right? I mean, we have, we have words for this, right? Like the 99% movement is to, is to describe tyrant CEOs who have all sorts of power and have all sorts of means to do things, but they could care less about the underlings and the people who are struggling to, make, to, to, to provide for their family and so now we have a movement that's built up against that, right? Or when you go to the store and you hang out and you see some dad who's got all the power in the world, right? Who's got the means and so on, but uses that power just to continually promote his own interests, to satisfy himself and not care at all about his children, you call foul. Or when you watch the news and you hear about some government leader like a warlord in Africa 
who's been, whose country has been given aid to help people who are starving, but that warlord says, no, I'm not going to give that aid to the people in my country. We're going to keep it all for ourselves and get fat and happy. You say, that's horrible, and rightfully so. Power without compassion is tyranny. On the other side of that, compassion without power is just a bleeding, is just a bleeding heart. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, why would you go to someone who cares a whole lot but can't do anything about it? Right? I mean, I mean, how many nonprofits start up? I, you know, I, I'm at APU, and there's, I see lots of APU folks. Good to see you guys. Um, you know, but I mean, we get so excited. Young people get so excited to go make change in the world. So I'm going to go start a nonprofit. Tons of compassion just boiling out. No power to make it happen. No means, no money, no nothing. So good idea, here it comes, and, pfft, and a year later it's gone. Because there's no compassion, right? I mean, there's no power. All you have is a bleeding heart. Ha, but in Jesus... We have power and compassion. You see that? He's the power, right? He's the great high priest. He has the power over sin. He, sees, he, he lived all the stuff that we walk through, and he never, ever sinned. But because he was there, he sympathizes with us. He has compassion. So what we have is we have a God who gets us but isn't gotten by the things that get us. We have a God who deeply cares about our struggles yet stands above our struggles. We have a God who is both good, fully compassionate, and great all-powerful, powerful enough to be perfect. My friends, that's Jesus, the sympathetic and great high priest. So if that's Jesus' identity, then what should we do? I hope you see that, right? Jesus is the great and sympathetic high priest, and because of that, the writer of Hebrews calls us to do two things. The first one is to hold fast our confession. So to hold fast, Chris talked about this a few weeks ago, to hold fast is to, like, literally hang on. Like, ah, I got it, right? This is not like, this is, this is not holding fast, right? Holding fast is like, I got it. I'm holding on to this thing with everything I have. And then secondly, he says, to hold fast what? He says, hold fast our confession. And if you're a Christian, your confession is that, it's, it, is that your hope is in Jesus. Your hope is not in what you do, because what you do isn't good enough. Your hope is in what Jesus has done. See, the Christian confession is one that confesses that I don't have it all together. Christian confession is one that says, I am constantly beset by temptation. I constantly fall to temptation, but I trust in a great high priest who paid the price for my sins and for your sins once and for all. So really, I want to ask you kind of two questions as it, as, it, as it relates to holding faster confession. The first one is this. What does it mean for you to not have it all together? So if you're all like me, <laughs> I like to have my ducks in a row. I like to have things put together. I don't like to have a whole lot of loose ends. And my hunch is there's many of you who can identify like that with me. And, and, and oftentimes our confession is in our ability to have it all together. But the Christian confession is one where we say, hey, I don't have it all together, but my Jesus does. So what would that look like for you to not have it all together? My hunch is that if you wouldn't worry about having it all together, which you don't, by the way, you'd hold fast to your confession and remember your need for Jesus. I remember going to a counseling session several years ago now, and, I, and, and the counselor basically said this. He goes, most people walk around life like this. And what he suggested was that in this hand is our strengths, and in this hand are your weaknesses. And he said, most people hide their weakness, but they walk through life holding out their strengths. They only allow people to see their strengths. And he challenged me. He said, Ryan, I encourage you to be a guy who doesn't walk with one hand behind your back. Ryan, be a guy who walks and does what you do like this. 
It's one of the most profound advice I've ever been given in my life. <laughs> the reality is if you know me, <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I got a lot going on in this hand. There's a lot of weakness. But my weakness constantly reminds me of my need for a great, great, great and powerful Savior. Do you allow your weakness to be shown? And the second question I want to ask you is, what are you holding fast to? So like if, if, the, writer of, if the writer of Hebrews says, we should hold fast, I guess, I guess like, like logically it follows that maybe we're holding fast to something else, or we're at least tempted to hold fast to something else. So what are you holding fast to? Like, are you holding fast to your ability to manage your schedule? Are you holding fast to your ability to have perfect kids? Are you holding fast to your education? Are you holding fast to your expertise? Are you holding fast to your prestige? Are you holding fast to your position? I mean, like, what are you holding fast to? Because if you hold on to that, if you hold fast to that, you can't hold on fast to Jesus. My wife and I just bought a new house. We've been doing tons of renovations in this house. And, I, and I'm, not the, I'm, not the, I'm not the sharpest guy when it comes to, to, doing, yard, to doing housework. So constantly I get myself into these predicaments where, I, where I've got my level out and I've got my shelf and I've got it fully level. I've got it like this and I'm holding up against the wall. And then I, I'm like, uh-oh, I'm stuck. Jill! Jill! What? What? Jill, come here! She comes. I'm like, what do you want? I'm like, I want you to put your hand on my hand. It's right here. I'm like, you know, and so she puts her hand up there and I pull it down. Okay, now with the other hand, hand me the drill. And she hands me the drill and I'm shaking and I'm not very skilled. And so it takes like five tries and finally, yeah, I get it in there. And, and, but here's the idea, right? I can't hold fast to that shelf and hold fast to that drill. Neither can you. You can't hold fast whatever it is that you think is your functional savior your money, your expertise, your whatever, and hold fast to Jesus. It's either this or that. You only get to hold fast to one thing. And I want to encourage you, hold fast your confession to Jesus. And then secondly, um, the writer of Hebrews tells us to do one more thing. And he tells us to let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And what a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture that is. Right? Because Jesus is the sympathetic and great high priest, we can confidently run to Jesus in time of need. And so, and so you know, this notion of with confidence, why, why, why can you run to Jesus with confidence? You can run to Jesus with confidence because he's both great and good, because he's both powerful and compassion, right? Like, like we particularly run to Jesus when life is really hard, when life kicks our teeth in, when the pain of life is overwhelming. And in those moments, you're only going to go to someone who has the power to do something about what you're facing. You don't want a bleeding heart. You want a powerful God. And on the other side of that, when you blow it, when you mess up, and the reality is we all do it every day. We all do it. You don't want to go to a God who's just powerful but not compassionate. You don't want to go to a God who's like, ah, you did it again, you idiot. Come on, when are you going to learn? You don't want to go to that God. You're going to stay far away from that God, aren't you? But no. The great and sympathetic high priest says, hey, I get it. I walk that earth that you walk. That is a tough place. Come here. So you can with confidence go to him. Secondly, we're told to draw near. What does it mean to draw near? I think it just means to run into the arms of Jesus. When we're in those tough moments of life, all the time, but especially in those tough moments of life, that we just say, okay, what does it look like to draw near? I think it looks like this. Like, where's God? You say, okay, if God's here, my job is just to turn to God, right? Here I am, God, help me. God, I need you. Not once you get your act cleaned up. Not, 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 not once you've, you've, 
figured out how to, how to hide all your stuff or put it all away, right then in the midst of it, you run to Jesus. See, and I think we have this idea sometimes that running to Jesus is like how two long-lost lovers who haven't seen each other for a long time, like how they run across the beach until they come into this wonderful embrace in the movies. Or, or like the YouTube videos we've seen lately of, of, some, uh, of a girl maybe who comes out onto a football, onto a football uh, uh, field, and then her dad, who was, over, who was over serving in Afghanistan or somewhere, right, he comes on, they see each other, wow, and they run to each other and they embrace. I think we sometimes think about that way, but I don't, I don't think it's that way. I was talking to a friend of mine as I, as I was kind of preparing this. And he goes, no, I think it's like this. Like, like, like we turn and bam, there's Jesus. Like, it's like Jesus is like, 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 like this. <laughs> Wherever we go, right? He's like this. And so as soon as we turn to him, boom, there's Jesus. He's there waiting for us. And my friends, that's where Jesus is. Like, like you don't have to run a long way to get to Jesus. He's right there right now waiting for you to turn to Jesus. I hope, I hope that you will do that. And then, and then, and then finally here, he says, we, we, we draw near to what? To the throne of grace. And my friends, what an amazing picture that is of the juxtaposition of power and compassion. See, see, see thrones are for kings. Thrones are for powerful people. Jesus can have any kind of throne he wants. But here the writer of Hebrews says, the throne is the throne of grace. Power and compassion beautifully melded together. I don't know about you, but I want a king of grace for a savior. I want, I, want, I want a great and sympathetic high priest. And that's what we have. We have a great and a sympathetic high priest. So let me give you four just kind of bullet point application points. What do you do with this? What does it look like to hold fast our confession and to confidently draw near to the throne of grace? First thing is this. Put your hope in Jesus. Not in you or something of your own making. Recognize whatever it is that's kind of your functional savior, the thing you put your hope in, you put your hope in the thing you like to hold on to, and let go of it so you can hold on to Jesus. What's that shelf that you're holding on to that prevents you from holding on to the thing that you really need? And by the way, that's not something you do one time and then you're good. That's something you do day in and day out every day of your life. Guys, as I drove in today, I'm saying, okay, God, my hope is not in me. My hope is not in my education. My hope is not in my whatever. God, my hope is in you. So God, do what you want to do, right? So put your hope in God. Secondly, relax and trust Jesus, especially for those of you who are stress balls. You think you have to have it all together. And I count myself as one of you. So when I talk to you, right, I'm, I'm pointing right back at me here too, Okay. Uh, an author who I love, his name is Mark Buchanan. He wrote a book called The Rest of God, which is a book on Sabbath, which is fantastic, by the way. And he says this, he says, either God is who he says he is, and you can take a break, or he's not, and you better work harder. Either God is who he says he is, and you can take a break, or he's not, and you better work harder. I'm trying to learn that God is who he says he is, and so I can take a break. So I can take a break. And if God is who he says he is, I can live my life like this, not like this, and so can you. Thirdly, if you're caught in sin, run to Jesus. Not after you've gotten all cleaned up, not after you've scrubbed away all evidence. Right now, right then, run to Jesus. Confess your sin to Jesus. Bring it into the light. Tell a friend who will point you to Jesus. Fill your mind with the truth of God's word. Flee situations, run to Jesus, and then know Jesus' grace. He is the king of grace, 
He sits on a throne of grace. He loves you desperately. He's waiting for you to turn to him. And then finally, don't try to handle it all on your own. When life kicks your teeth in, when life is hard, and that's a lot of the time, <laughs> run to Jesus. You need him. You need, a, you need a powerful and compassionate Savior. You need friends. You need people who are running with Jesus and who will invite you to run with them. So the best news of all, though, is the very last line of the verse, and we'll close with this. You see, when you run to Jesus, you'll find something. And the writer of Hebrews says, when you run to Jesus, you'll find mercy and grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, but I need mercy and grace. I need it every day. That's the thing that all of us need. Whether, whether we've been a, been a believer for five days or five months or five years or 50 years, what we need every day, day in and day out, is the grace of Jesus. I was struck last week as I was scrolling through Facebook, and I happened across a post of, one of, my, of a couple of my former students. Their names are BJ and Sarah. They live in Texas now. They're fantastic. They're fantastic um, kids. They're not kids. Fantastic young adults. And uh, they, were, they were scheduled to have a baby in about four or five weeks from, from right now. And I was struck as I saw the picture of Sarah holding their baby and then a note that went with it. And the, 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 crux, the crux of the matter is this. Baby came about five weeks early and baby was dead when baby came out. And they were crushed. And I knew, I knew who BJ and Sarah were and I knew their understanding of the gospel. And so I wanted to watch kind of what would happen. And, uh, and don't worry, I like, I like send notes of condolence. It's not like I was just like a creeper watcher. But I, but I watched. And uh, a couple days ago, here's what BJ wrote on his, on, his, on his Facebook page. It says, if we're angry, it's because things aren't right here. If we're angry, it's because the world is badly broken. If we're angry, it's because there are babies who are in orphanages and in state programs and in dumpsters and in clinics who are unwanted and abandoned by their moms and dads. While our daughter, whom we love and so badly long to hold, was born dead. If we're angry, it's because there are people who are being sold for sex. If I'm angry, it's because I am selfish and slow to remember God. If we're angry, it's because there are cancers and divorces and car wrecks and murders and things aren't right here. And if we're hopeful, and get this, get this, get this. If we're hopeful, it's because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we couldn't die. If we're hopeful, it's because we're enemies of God and he has covered us with the blood of Jesus and made us his sons and daughters. And if we're hopeful, it's because Willa doesn't know brokenness. If we're hopeful, it's because there are people who love us and remind us of the greater love. And if we're hopeful, it's because Willa has not stopped pointing us back to Jesus. And then he puts some parentheses. And not in some self-help, trying to cope, false comfort kind of way, but in the historical truth of who he was and what he did, and in the grace to believe that he'll do, he's, he'll do what he said he would do. And if we're hopeful, it's because things will someday be made right and all things sad will come untrue and darkness will be swallowed up in light and joy will run rampant and all will be well. You see, BJ and Sarah need mercy and grace. So do I and so do you. BJ and Sarah know where that mercy and grace is found. They know that they find it in Jesus, their great and sympathetic high priest. That, my friends, is who Jesus is. Jesus is the great and sympathetic high priest. So my friends, trust the great high priest who gave the ultimate sacrifice for you and paved the road back to God for you. If you've trusted him to be your savior every day, hold fast your confession. If you've never trusted Jesus, today's the day, run to Jesus. And you get to run to him confidently. 
You see, he loved you so much that he died for you. He gave his perfect life so that your imperfect life, so you can have life even though you're imperfect. It's the greatest trade in all of human history. If you're hurting, take comfort that the great high priest is also the sympathetic high priest. He deeply, deeply, deeply cares for you. He knows what you're going through. He's right there pursuing you and waiting for you to draw near to him. And for all of us, hold on to the hope like BJ and Sarah are, that one day Jesus, our great and sympathetic high priest, will set straight all that's crooked, will right everything that is wrong, and will fix everything that is broken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus um, to advocate for us and to sacrifice himself so that we could have life. Truly, Jesus is the great and sympathetic high priest. God, we're, we are so, 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 so grateful. And God, I, I ask, Lord, that we would be people who would do what the writer of Hebrews encourages, to, encourages us to do. That we would be people, God, that I, that I would go first. God, we'd be people who would hold fast to our confession. We would say, hey, it's not about what I got going on, but it's about what Jesus has done. Because, God, you, you, you are amazing. And what Jesus has done is absolutely remarkable. And, God, I also pray that we'd be people that in the times, of, that in challenging times, in times of need, would draw near confidently to the throne of grace where we will find help in time of need. God, that's what we, that's what we, that's what we need. So, God, help us to run to you. God, save us. God, we need you. Our hope is in you. That is our confession. And we walk in that today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.